The following episode features an historic novel that contains some sensitive and potentially controversial subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Gibson Girl Review, the historic fiction podcast that rescues old books from the doom of mere decor and puts them back where they rightfully belong, in your to-be-read pile. Each episode features a discussion and review of one of the famous or forgotten novels published during the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Join us every other week as we uncover the history and humanity found within these antique treasures and explore just how entertaining and relevant they still are more than a century later. Everyone, welcome back to the Gibson Girl Review, the brand new podcast for old-fashioned book lovers. I'm Amy Drown. And I'm Katella Bonte. And we are not alone today. That's right. It has always been our dream to grow this show and to bring you more voices talking about old books. Definitely. So we're just super excited to announce today that, ladies and gentlemen, we now have a third Gibson Girl Reviewer. And here she is. Everyone, put your hands together to welcome our new co-host, Jacinta Meredith. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I've really been looking forward to this. Jacinta is a former security analyst who resigned from her career three years ago to pursue writing full-time. And I am totally jealous of that. <laughs> and you can find some of her published short stories on her website, which we will put a link to in our show notes today. So, Jacinta, can you tell us about your love of history and old books? Well, I have to be honest here. It was definitely the dresses. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, even though I really do love the pretty dresses and the Victorian era and the Edwardian era and have for as long as I can remember, history was never one of my favorite subjects. I found all of the history books just so boring. Really? But then... I discovered historical fiction. Uh-huh. And I realized that for me, it was all about presentation. I loved knowing history, but it never stuck with me unless it was presented as a story or was something that I actually wanted to know because of or for a story. That makes total sense. So from there, I developed my love of researching specific events or time periods, depending on what I was reading or writing at the time. My current book takes place on the Oregon-California Trail, and I'm pretty sure people avoid this subject around me because I get so excited <laughs> that I spout off random facts that I'm absolutely positive they need to know. I relate to that. <laughs> I think we all can. That is so awesome. I love it. And I totally agree. That's part of why we love these old books, because it's a fun way to learn about the past, because you're being told a story. Yes. You're not just reading random content. Exactly. And that's why a lot of people don't like history mm -hmm. in school, because they think it's dry and boring. But reading it through the lens of fiction just brings it alive in a really fun way that makes you want to know more. Exactly. So yes. you are in the right place for that. Obviously. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Katya and I have already shared our stories of how we became obsessed with old books and old novels, and you can listen to that on our very first episode if you scroll back through our playlist. But we need to know your story, Jacinta. Where and when did you fall in love with antique books and with antique novels in particular, like the ones that we review here on the Gibson Girl Review? So I've actually been contemplating that ever since I listened to your first episode, uh -huh. and I've decided that I came out of the womb loving them. 
actually, I can't remember a time when I didn't adore antique books. But I do remember when I first started actually collecting them. I was taking a road trip to Virginia with my grandmother for, it was either my sophomore or junior year of college. And we stopped at her brother's house for the night, since it was a very long drive from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And he had this gorgeous book that was a collection of Tennyson's poems. It was published in 1878. Victorian poetry books are the most beautiful. Yes. Yes. It just like had these gilded edges. Like, oh my gosh, it was so beautiful. And I spent the entire night curled up in a chair in his living room, alternating between reading Tennyson and cooing over the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And before we left, he gave it to me as a gift. Oh, So it is still proudly displayed on my shelf, center mass, (laughs) and that was the start of my actual collection. That is so cool. Yep, Tennyson is still my favorite poet. (laughs) I love Tennyson, so that is an awesome story. I'm curious what interested you about the show and made you want to get involved. Well, Amy said two magic words, or phrases as the case may be. She mentioned Gibson Girls and old books. So... You already know that I adore antique books, but the Gibson Girls, I've actually been obsessed with them forever. So when you mentioned Gibson Girls and books, there was literally no way I could say no. (laughs) (laughs) So Jacinta is going to be joining the show on kind of a part-time basis for now. So you'll be hearing more from her and definitely coming up in season two, which is just a few episodes away. Yeah, I know. This first season of the podcast just totally flew by. Right? And in many ways, it still feels like we're just getting started. It does. But at the same time, we're already well underway with reading books for season two. And that's going to begin this summer. Yes. So while season one is winding down, don't worry, folks. You won't have to wait long at all for season two. But season one isn't over yet. And we need to get to today's book because we have a lot to say about it. And as such, we are once again forgoing our history segment about the Gibson girl and Charles Dana Gibson so that we can dive straight into this book. So we're going to take a quick break. And while we do, here's a little mood music to set the stage for today's all new old book review. Here's the thing. All three of us have read today's book and we all enjoyed it, although perhaps for different reasons. But the trick with today's book is that it is not perfect. I mean, no one is, right? We're all human. But the fact that it's not perfect makes it perfect for this podcast. Absolutely. So first things first, what kind of book are we talking about and what time frame? Well, I think this book is similar to Pink and White Tyranny, the novel you featured in episode one, Mm -hmm. because it's kind of both famous and forgotten in that the author has written other famous works, but people have probably never heard of this one. Mm -hmm. Although having said that, I did mention it to my younger sister yesterday and she had heard of it. (laughs) So it might kind of depend on how voracious a reader you are. Right. That's always the case. Mm -hmm. What's a forgotten book to one person is a totally famous one to someone else. 
I'd also say that this book straddles that Gilded Age and Progressive Era line, and we've talked about that in some past books before. Mm -hmm. This was published right on the cusp of that change. So it's a transitional book. And what book are we talking about? The Wheat Princess by Jean Webster, first published in 1905. Now, I think this is a book that you picked for us, right, Katya? Yes. I read it last year, and I really enjoyed it. So when Amy and I were looking for books for the podcast, I thought of this one because it's very much historic fiction. Yes. And I also remember that you mentioned at the time that this was by the same author who wrote Daddy Longlegs. I had heard of Daddy Longlegs, although I wasn't really familiar with the author behind it. So I was willing to give this book a try. Like, why not? And it sounded really intriguing when Katya described it to me. So Katya, let's have you describe it to our listeners today. What is The Wheat Princess about? The Wheat Princess is a romance novel about Marcia Copley, who's a young American heiress traveling abroad in Europe in the late 1890s. She's too busy living the high life to pay attention to the poverty and hunger around her. So as her family's wealth was attained, in part by cornering the wheat market, she earns the rather derogatory nickname of the Wheat Princess by both the local Italian population, which is starving, and the American attaché, Lawrence Seibert, whom Marcia can't stand, but who seems to pop up everywhere she goes. I love how you pronounce things with your French accent. It <laughs> yeah. sounds so refined. I call her Marsha. What? Which in my head always reverts to Marsha, Marsha, Marsha from the Brady Bunch. I definitely think of it as Marcia. Really? I never even thought of pronouncing it different. So, okay. Marsha, Marcia, however you want to pronounce it. <laughs> What we're talking about here is a book about another American heiress in Europe, which gives me Miss Bale's romance <laughs> hauntings. But don't worry, this book is nothing like Miss Bale's romance. Mm -hmm. This is an actual story <laughs> that we're talking about. So she's spending her summer in this villa in the Italian countryside, which, hello, dream vacation. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And I love the setting personally because... Italian history is something I've studied, and I find it super fascinating. So that was really enjoyable for me right from the start. And the other thing I really liked was how blunt this book was. I was really struck by how the author just dove into these different perspectives and showed them to the reader to think about. I definitely agree with you on the Italian setting, and that was actually my very first reaction to this book. The history nerd in me was geeking out. Yes, it's a very unique setting for sure. What about you, Jacinta? What was your initial reaction to this book? So I have never researched Italian history, and I don't think I've ever really read a book that was placed there either. So this was an entirely new setting for me. Mm. I found it really fascinating. I loved reading about the countryside and all of the scenery. Mm -hmm. Definitely made me want to visit. And I actually was impressed with how deftly the author wove romance with economic and political intrigue. Yeah, the only Italian books that I could think of were like E.M. Forster novels, Room with a View, books like that, where you have the English going to Italy. But the bulk of those books aren't set in Italy like this one. So mm. you could kind of think of that as a possible comparison, but this right. book is 100% set in Italy, so it's very different. And it sounds like we all more or less had a positive initial reaction to this book. But I do have to say, this book has some very intentional themes about our heroine who needs to open her eyes to the hardships in the world around her. 
But it also has some unintentional lessons that we as modern readers also need to keep our eyes open about, because there are some unpleasant realities about the time in which this book was written that come through the story. But all of this combines to make our title quote for today's episode doubly perfect. Yes. Throughout the book, Marcia and the hero have these long philosophical conversations. And in one of them, Marcia says that the world used to be so much pleasanter to live in before I knew there was any misery in it. I wish I didn't have to know. And so the hero replies, don't you feel that you are happier in a worthier sense when you look at life with your eyes open? When you honestly take the bad along with the good? Yes, and I think that's exactly the approach we have to take with this book, with all old books, really. Mm -hmm. Because we, like the heroine, have to keep our eyes open when we are reading these historic novels and take the bad along with the good. Which, mm -hmm. again, just makes this quote absolutely perfect for today's episode title. And I think it can really be applied not just to the overarching theme of looking at the bad with the good, but also looking at all sides of an issue before coming to a conclusion, yeah. which is perfect for this book, which I feel addresses questions humanity has struggled with yes. throughout all of history. Yeah, absolutely. Which actually is kind of what surprised me about this book. Mm -hmm. I expected a fun classic romance. And while I certainly got that, I was taken off guard when I realized the book was also delving deeply into the question of monopolies, government, and economics. Mm -hmm. As Katsia mentioned earlier, it was a blunt discussion that I didn't expect from a Gibson Girl era novel. I think the thing that surprised me the most was the writing style. Jean Webster has a very natural storytelling voice. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in old novels, the language can feel kind of hoity-toity, mm -hmm. but Webster's writing felt very grounded, and the best word I can think of to describe it is simply normal. Yes. At one point, one of the guys sits down to have a discussion with another guy and said, so what's up? Yeah. If that were a contemporary historical novel, I would be berating the author for not doing their research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we actually talked about that in our last episode in the story Travers. And the very first dialogue you see in that story is a character saying, what's up? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so again, I love all these tie-ins and all these little clues that suppositions we might have about the past aren't correct. And here is primary source proof that people used to talk in slang in these casual conversation styles 100 years ago, just like we do now. That's crazy. Again, they're normal people talking mm -hmm. normally. Yes, I completely agree. That's something that surprised me too. And I loved it as well. But the other thing that surprised me, and I think it surprised me most, was I expected a comedy because of Daddy Long Legs, but this book ended up being really serious. That's really what struck me most. <laughs> it's just so honest. And that actually makes me wonder, how was this book received back in the day? It was actually very well received. The critics in 1905 praised Webster's writing, calling it strong and original. They also really loved the Italian setting, and all of the reviews that I found talked about this book's naturalness and realness of the characters. I love when we have the same reaction as original reviewers. It just, like, brings out the humanity in the history. Yes, and normally I agree with that, but in this case, once I found all of these reviews and all this universal praise for the book back in 1905, that actually contributed to why this book was problematic mm. for me. Why don't we go ahead and give our listeners a sample from the book? 
Yes. Today, Amy's going to read a scene from The Wheat Princess, and I think it shows off Webster's realistic characters and natural writing style pretty well. Plus, it gives this little behind-the-scenes glimpse of the dislike-at-first-sight romance that's brewing between the hero and heroine. Marcia went on slowly downstairs, her frown gathering volume as she proceeded. She wished to take a horseback ride, and she wished nothing else for the moment. She foresaw that her aunt would propose that she ride into Tivoli and take tea with the Contessa. If there was one thing she hated, it was to ride in a steady jog trot beside the carriage. And if there was a second thing, it was to take tea with the Contessa. She heard Mrs. Copley's and Gerald's voices in the salon, and she advanced to the doorway. Aunt Catherine, I'm furious. This is the first time in four days that it has stopped raining long enough for me to go out, and I'm dying to take a gallop in the country. That miserable Angelo has gone off with Gerald's pony, and there isn't another man on the place that can go with me. You needn't propose my riding into Tivoli to take tea with the Contessa, for I won't do it. She delivered this outburst from the threshold, and as she advanced into the room, she was slightly disconcerted to see Lawrence Seibert lazily pulling himself from a chair to greet her. If she ever showed in a particularly bad light, Seibert was sure to be at hand. He bowed, his face politely grave, but there was the provoking suggestion of a smile not far below the surface. And as she looked at him, Marcia had the uncomfortable feeling that her own face was growing red. "'I'm sorry about Angelo, my dear,' said Mrs. Copley. "'I didn't know that you wanted to ride this afternoon. But here is Mr. Seibert, who has come out to see your uncle, and your uncle won't be back till evening. I'm sure he will be glad to go with you.' Marcia glanced back at her aunt with an expression that said, "'Oh, Aunt Catherine, wait till I get you alone.'" So that chapter is one of my favorites. I loved Marcia. She was sweet. She was impulsive. She was well-meaning. And I just thought she was very realistic. And honestly, I related to her a lot as a very romantic person who doesn't always see the bad stuff in life because I've got such rosy glasses. So that's part of why I enjoyed the book so much, honestly, because I related to her so much. And I thought Seibert was an excellent contrast as a character. He was just as passionate, but he was reserved. He was serious, but he had lots of humor once they started bantering. I just loved how dramatic and alive these characters were. And for the most part, I agree with you, but I majorly have to disagree with you on Cybert. As a general rule, I love the whole dislike at first sight romance trope. So I was really into that part of the story. But when they start revealing how old this guy is... He's more than 12 years older than she is. Isn't that the case in Daddy Longlegs, too, though? Yeah. Isn't he, like, super old? And it creeps me out in that book, too. I'm not going to lie. It does creep yeah, me out or in that like book. Yes. Jane Austen's Emma. Yeah, Daddy Longlegs was a little bit... I liked Emma, but Daddy Longlegs... Well, and in Emma, between Emma and Mr. Knightley, again, you have, like, a 16-year age difference. Yeah. And the age difference itself doesn't creep me out. What creeps me out is... The way that the older men in these stories 
have this grooming approach to the young woman, like how Mr. Knightley is always scolding and instructing Emma on how she should behave yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And you see Cyber, he felt the same way. Like he's trying to groom her to be some kind of ideal wife. And it made me think of our first episode that you mentioned earlier, just into pink and white tyranny and how they both approach that relationship with, oh, I'm going to mold this person into my ideal spouse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Another thing I didn't like about the hero, he was this kind of like a Zorro type figure who had one persona in public and then this secret life of helping the downtrodden Italian peasants. Mm -hmm. And I kept waiting for a time in the book when we would actually get to see him in action and see him come out of this stoic persona. And it never does. The mask never comes off. All you hear is all of these other characters saying, he's such a fine man. But Webster never actually does anything to let us see him being this fine, helpful man. I get the type of hero she was trying to present in this guy, Lawrence Seibert, but thumbs down for me. Sorry. So I do agree that Marcia was sweet. She had great character development, and I really appreciated that aspect. But she also struck me as kind of thoughtless, which I know might sound odd because there were some very selfless things she did in the book. But so much of it was impulsive mm -hmm. that for me, it was almost a reflection of how clueless she actually was. Yeah. And when her eyes were being opened to the hardships around her, I felt like she was usually forced into making decisions or she made them impulsively instead of thinking about it and taking purposeful steps. So I had a harder time relating to her, even though I did like her. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. I kind of felt like she had almost like a Marie Antoinette personality. Yeah. Starving people around her wanting bread. And so she goes out and buys chocolate for all the kids in town. It's kind of yeah. like, is that really helpful? Is that really the best thing you could do here? Which definitely fit her personality. Yeah. But... I didn't necessarily see that changing later, at least that type of impulse. As she became more aware of what was happening, she changed her actions a little bit, but mostly in response to what the men kind of told her to do. I would agree with that. So when it comes to Seibert, he kind of confused me. I did like him, actually. I liked that he kept his own counsel. I liked that he clearly struggled which path in life to take because he wanted to do what was right, but he didn't seem to quite know what the right path was. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. But with that also came some confusion because I was never entirely sure what side he landed on. And usually he also ended up being forced into decisions. Even at the end of the book, it just felt too much like circumstances moving him instead of him choosing mm. what to do. Yeah, I think they're both very reactive characters. Yeah, and that kind of bothered me, probably because I'm an Enneagram 1. As a reactive character, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I felt it. <laughs> and I'm like, they should both be becoming more aware of all these things around them and then making choices themselves, not letting circumstances push them. Like you could understand it at the beginning. Yes. Something makes me react. Absolutely. But then you want to see a transition into, I'm going to start making these decisions exactly. for myself. And I felt like it never quite made that leap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I definitely agree with you. I hated his thoughts about shaping and molding Marcia. But I did actually feel like Paul was a little more manipulative than him mm -hmm. with his attempts to force her into a decision. I know it doesn't sound like it, but I actually did like the characters. I thought that they all had their own strengths and weaknesses, which is a pretty accurate reflection of humans. Yeah, for sure. So related to that, 
while the clear overarching theme was taking the bad with the good, I also found it a fascinating commentary on when an economically based decision is capitalism versus a monopoly, how much power the government should have in difficult situations, and where blame lies when things go so wrong that an entire country is starving, Mm. as well as how much responsibility the wealthy have to alleviate suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I felt like the book presented both sides fairly well, Mm -hmm. uh, but they weren't afraid to address multiple aspects of the issue. So I guess when it came down to it, I appreciate the complexities of both the characteristics of the characters themselves, as well as the multiple themes that were layered on top of the romance. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think we all like that. It Mm -hmm. felt kind of modern in that way, in that there is a very intentional construction to what this writer wants to get across. Yeah. Yes. To me personally, I thought the book was really a call to look beyond the picturesque and see the truth, but at the same time, not lose sight of the beauty, which is a very relevant theme for me. And it also brought up so many questions about, like, revolution versus obedience to the government, old-fashioned ways versus modern technology, religion versus true knowledge of God, appearances versus the truth, riches versus poverty, and most of all, brought out character. And so, while I didn't agree with everything this novel said, it certainly gave me a lot to think about, and that's what I really appreciated, and how much the author showed both sides of the picture And she didn't shy away from the hard facts, which, again, as a romantic and someone who tends to not see the hard things because I prefer the pretty things, I found this theme super striking and it really gave me a lot of soul searching. Honestly, I put it down and I had to do a lot of thinking. And that's always a good thing. Yes, exactly. Which is why I recommended this book for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. The questions the book raised are still in hot debate today and probably always will be. As long as people Mm -hmm. are people. Absolutely. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes. As someone who is a mix of many nations myself, and I live in a hugely multicultural place, I was fascinated with how the book presented the fact that different cultures have such hugely, deeply engraved ideas or actions and how they get confused or frustrated by different cultures. That's not something I see often in books because a lot of people try to pretend that those issues don't exist and everybody's the same. So again, as someone who deals with this culture issue firsthand on a daily basis, I really appreciated seeing it. Yeah, and there's a lot on the history side too. Webster in college studied economics and that really comes across in this book. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I felt there were points when that overshadowed the story, like if the characters really got too bogged down in a conversation about the economic impact and the market and all this kind of stuff. It began to slide into what we call the author intrusion. Mm-hmm. But overall, it still does really give this very unique glimpse at a time in history. So I actually did like those parts, even though they drew me out of the story at times. Mm-hmm. That actually like really stimulated a conversation between me and my husband. Partway through the book, we sat down for dinner and I was telling him about it. And we ended up in an involved discussion about economics. That's and, awesome. <laughs> and the ins and outs of how it would work or that should work. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. So like we already said, the whole subject of the history of the Italian unification was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because Webster lived in Italy and wrote this book while she was in Italy, it's a very close to firsthand account of this really unique time in history. So I can definitely recommend the book on that. 
But even beyond the story subject matter, this book revealed a lot about 1905 society in general. And it's a lot more than I think most of us would like to see. Mm -hmm. The Wheat Princess was like the 1905 version of The Matrix. The heroine is challenged to stop being clueless and to start seeing the world around her for how it really is. And I just kept thinking, Cybert's telling her to take the red pill. (laughs) (laughs) And as the book went on, I just kept having that same experience. I, as a reader, am being asked to either take the blue pill and just enjoy the story on a surface level for the romance and the drama and the action and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Or I, as a reader, could take the red pill and be forced to acknowledge that this book and the society in which it was written was not as idyllic Mm-hmm. as we in the 21st century might like to think it was. Yeah. And for me, a lot of that comes down to what I learned about the author herself. I didn't know anything about Jean Webster. Nor did I. I didn't even know that she was the person who wrote Daddy Long Legs. I'm really glad that I wasn't the only one who didn't know that. Yeah, so I was like, <laughs> I knew it was a story and a famous story, but I didn't have an author name to connect yes. to it, right? Exactly. And I knew what creeped me out about that story. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> yes. But... Like we do with every episode, we dive into some background information on our authors and on our books because it helps inform our reading experience. And Jean Webster appears to me to be something of a dichotomy. On the one hand, she was a very strong, independent woman who championed women's education and suffrage, and she took a keen interest in politics and social betterment through causes like the Settlement House Movement. She was descended from several generations of these strong, activist-minded women. And how's this for a literary connection? Her mother was Mark Twain's niece. Mm, Wow. So Jean Webster is actually Mark Twain's great-niece. That's kind of cool. She went to Vassar, the exclusive women's college, where she majored in English and economics. So again, you can see where the economic side of the Wheat Princess grows out of her own economic studies, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And during that time at Vassar, she actually spent a semester in Europe during her junior year, including a lengthy stay in Italy. And it was while she was in Italy, she wrote a senior thesis paper on the subject of pauperism in Italy. And she also wrote a short story about an Italian villa for her school newspaper. And that became the origin story for The Wheat Princess. Oh, wow. She graduated from Vassar in 1901. And this book was published in 1905. So thinking about how young she was when she wrote this novel, too. Mm-hmm. She loved Italy. She returned to Italy with her mother a couple years later and spent the winter there, actually holed up in a convent wow. for some private writing time. Interesting. <laughs> this all sounds good, right? We're talking about an author who knows what she's writing about in terms of all of the subject matter you see in this book. So she's bringing a lot of good stuff to what she's writing here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But then you have the other side of Jean Webster. In all of her economic stuff, she was known to support some rather extreme Marxist political candidates for office. Mm. And she actually had connections to the eugenics movement, which upheld such beliefs as racial segregation, the anti-miscegenation laws, and even things like forced sterilization, all in an attempt to purify the human race. Wow. I mean, the whole eugenics argument was used by Nazis to defend their actions during the Holocaust yeah. in the Nuremberg trials. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking seriously dark, terrible stuff. Wow. And it's even being played out still today in terms of 
genetic testing and things that we do right. on preborn children to see if they're going to have Down syndrome or diseases yeah. and people who use that information to make decisions about pregnancies. I mean, it all ties back to the same concept of this eugenics movement, which I'm tearing up because I'm just horrified by this whole thing. And so seeing hints of that in this story, that was the problem for me. So like I said, I didn't know any of this about Gene Webster before I read The Wheat Princess. But even without knowing anything about her specifically, I knew enough about the history of this time period and things like the eugenics movement that I saw these glimpses as the book went on. Little phrases or expressions or descriptions that just leapt off the page and made me think, whoa, was this lady into eugenics or something? And I was really sad to learn that apparently she was. And these overtones would become more prominent in Webster's later works. I think the book that's Mm -hmm. most famously talked about is the book Dear Enemy, which is a sequel to Daddy Long Legs. And it blatantly talks about children with Down syndrome and mental issues being segregated away for the betterment Mm -hmm. of society and just horrible things like that. And it was just cringeworthy to me. And there are references like that in The Wheat Princess. For example, there is one point in this story where Marsha's uncle is talked about having once tried to be a do-gooder for the Negroes back home, and that's the word they use in the book, only to come to the conclusion that they were, quote, too lazy to ever be helped and had to be abandoned to their evolutionary fate. And that just made me sick to my stomach, just reading that. Yeah. And there are numerous descriptions in the book of the Italian peasantry as being beasts of burden and that they're happy to be so. Like it's their evolutionary lot in life to be a lower class of person somehow than us rich people who need to open our eyes to help them. So it's just little things like that that jumped out at me and made me like I had to put the book down a couple times because I was getting upset. Like, I don't want to read this. I don't want this to be in here. Mm-hmm. And in both of those situations, none of the characters in the book say anything about it. Yeah. These comments are completely accepted as common knowledge, truth, yeah. whatever, in the story itself. Mm-hmm. And that's what actually made me even more upset when I found all of the original reviews, mm-hmm. because none of the reviews mentioned it either. Mm-hmm. Wow. What that tells me is that these ideas were systemic. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is the kind of book that many people in the 2020s would be trying to cancel. Mm-hmm. You put all of this together, we're talking about The Wheat Princess as a good fiction story, but one that has a very dark and disturbing mindset about the time in which this book was written and published. And for me, it's not only heartbreaking, but it is a call to action. This is something we have to learn from. Mm -hmm. We cannot pretend that these kind of views never existed. You can't change the past by canceling it. We have to use books like The Wheat Princess as conversation starters. Yes. So sorry for that whole big lecture here, but that's the whole reason why we're doing an episode on The Wheat Princess, because there's this duality to it. On the one hand, you can look at it as a simple story, or you can take the blinders off and see a lot of this really dark and disturbing stuff that's happening in the subtext of this story. Yes. 
I admit there's a reason why I very seldom look up authors of books. <laughs> Same here. I would rather not know all of this. I would yeah. be much happier having the blue pill option on this book yeah, and just exactly. being able to enjoy the romance in the Italian countryside <laughs> yeah. and the horseback riding through the vineyards. I would totally love that. I wish yes. that could have been my reading experience. But that's something that <laughs> yes. the book does present, that that's just not the responsible yeah. way to live. You just can't always go through life ignoring things because they're ugly exactly i was vaguely aware of webster being into eugenics yeah. from the sequel to daddy long legs as you said dear enemy and when i read that i was very young so a lot of it went over my head because i couldn't fathom how anybody could be so awful so i did not even realize it was so deep in that book but as you say amy this book is really hard to read honestly it doesn't whitewash the ugly side of history but it's a really good reminder to modern readers that the past was not all pretty dresses and horse-drawn carriages. Exactly. And like I said, there are ties to the eugenics movement still being debated in medical circles today. Mm -hmm. We may call it something different, but we're still living with it. It's still happening now. Yeah, yes. absolutely. I'll admit that I read the book pretty fast, so I did not pick up the eugenics overtone. So I'm finding it really fascinating to listen to this discussion on it. And I half kind of want to go back so I can see what I missed in my speed reading. <laughs> I have to say I didn't pick up on it either. Okay. But I'm really glad she brought it up. Yes, me too. I do think it's a very fascinating discussion and a very important one. Mm -hmm. And you also brought up all the derogatory references. Those definitely bothered me. The comments that you mentioned about laziness and beasts of burden and all of that yeah, I was kind of horrified, especially the people who were there to supposedly help the same people they were down talking. Yeah, their desire to help for me always carried a very condescending tone to it. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking when I was trying to figure it out. It's almost like they thought the Italians were completely content to be poor, mm. and they didn't want to better themselves. But they were still trying to help. Like, oh, you don't know what's good for you. Let me tell you what's good for you. So I found that a very interesting dichotomy. Exactly. There's so many levels to this book. It's like this big giant onion. <laughs> yes. Some of that was intentional, I think, in how yeah. Webster wrote the story. But I also think there's just a lot of this subtext that was just oozing out of mm -hmm. the times in which she lived. Yes. Yeah, and I think that you make a very valid point in that those comments were probably thrown in just because it was the view of the day, mm -hmm. or at least the view of the author. So she didn't think anything of throwing it in, apparently. But I do love your point that we need to actually keep books, even with these difficult subjects around, so that we can discuss it, so that we don't make them disappear as though it never happened, because that just leaves a gap for it to come back. Right. And I think it's important to realize that it hasn't gone. Exactly. You just can't pretend that that only happened in the 1900s. Right. We're still living that nowadays. It's still a problem that humanity is facing. Yes. And this is one of the best reasons to read old books and mm -hmm. actual physical old books if you can get your hands on them because nobody can come along and censor and rewrite your yeah. already published book, right? Yes. The better thing to do is to take all the blinders off Mm -hmm. See what's there, the good and the bad, because knowing that the bad exists can help you appreciate the good, just like this character's experience in mm -hmm. this novel. Right. And pretending it doesn't exist means you can't fix exactly. it because you just hit it. 
It also takes away what those people suffered. Yes. Exactly. It diminishes their actual pain. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That is such yeah. a great point. Wow. Who knew this episode was going to get this? <laughs> I did. I knew. <laughs> Dang. Woo. <laughs> there is just so much that we can unpack about this book. And that's why you should read it. You yes. may not agree with everything. And I think we all agree that there is good and bad in this book. Yeah. But that's the whole point. And this is why I wanted to still do this episode on this book, even though my personal opinion leans toward the negative side. I still think it's valid to talk about. And we had the same discussion in our episode about Miss Bale's romance. Even bad old books still deserve to be read. Yes. In this case, I would say even controversial old books still deserve to be read. Because mm -hmm. would we have had any of these great conversations if we had not read this book, right? Mm -hmm. There is so much that you can get out of reading an old book like The Wheat Princess that that is exactly why we have the Gibson Girl Review. Mm -hmm. It's to find topics like this in the books that we read so that we can have these discussions. Right. And like we say at the end of every episode, we explore the past and examine the present, right? You right. can do all of that through reading a book like The Wheat Princess. Yes. It's definitely not the easiest book to read. As I said, when I first read it, it ended up with a lot of soul searching for me. But I would say it's super historically accurate in ways the author probably didn't intend, as we probably just pointed out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And it holds so many things that are important for us as people to think about. As a novel, I love it because it's so well done. But the biggest thing to me is the nonfiction, the deepness and even the darkness that it explores and the questions it raises for the reader to think about and answer themselves in whatever era they happen to be in. Yes, I completely agree. Like I said, I'm torn about this book. On the one hand, I can see well-written romance with all of that great tension and drama and the whole slow burn that we love in this genre. The mm -hmm. setting is unique and there's some really interesting history that isn't often seen in novels. There's a lot to like about this, but there is also a lot to dislike yeah. about this book. And like the heroine, I wish I could unsee them <laughs> And just enjoy the story for the romance, even if the hero is a bit too old and creepy for my taste. But like I said, the biggest recommendation for why you should read this book is because these hard truths about the past, some of which still echo even today, need to be read and talked about so that we can learn yeah. and mm -hmm. do better. And I personally really did enjoy The Wheat Princess, even with my varied feelings on the characters. I love that it pushed readers to consider difficult questions and face hard facts. Mm -hmm. I think that my main issue with this book, outside of the very obvious ones that we have been discussing, is that I felt like the main characters really let circumstances push them into decisions rather than standing up and making the decisions themselves. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, I did find it a fascinating book with very interesting themes. I agree. And now it's time to close the cover on The Weed Princess by Jean Webster. Join us next time when we revisit the past and examine the present through the pages of another antique novel and uncover just what it means to read like a gypsy girl. Thank you for listening to the Gibson Girl Review, a Curious Antiquarian production. For complete show notes, transcripts, download links, and more, please visit us at gibsongirlreview.com.
as we all exhale, right? Yes. We're, all like, oh. <laughs> We're like, whoa, how do you come down from this conversation, right? <laughs> 